Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, here we are on a Saturday. No Friday Night Lights. We had a lot going on yesterday. We did. So we're kind of... Just doing it on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Yeah, we're, we're so yeah. No, I think this is uh, we we're not uh, we can change things up a bit. Yeah, we do, we record all time all different times. Though. Right. Sometimes we record uh, spontaneously <laughs> late in the evening. Yeah, depends on yeah. Usually if the we would have recorded on the Trump thing if you if you hadn't had an early night. You went to bed early that I one night. the other night. Well, but yeah, uh, yeah, we do in case periodically we record if the republic's in danger, which. Which means like breaking news, breaking <laughs> super these, breaking news, yeah, exactly extra breaking news, extra very very big breaking news. Yeah, we have so much. Bre- we have the best breaking news in this country. Yeah, no, I, I guess yeah. Um, President Trump is do- touring uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and then going to be at the Vatican. Uh, so Donald Trump's giving his thoughts on the three major monotheistic uh, religions and some of the most uh, troubled spots in the world. So what possibly could. Go wrong. Well, then after that 72nd spot, what's he going to say after that? <laughs> I mean, I mean I, would it take him 70 seconds to get out that much? Yeah, to, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a little nervous about the uh, uh, address he's going to give to the Muslim community, the symbol of Muslim community. But at least he's got that Toby Keith concert. That's his backup. He's got that in the back right. pocket. Only the men can go, though. Yeah. Well, there's, there's one advantage to being a woman. <laughs> Do you think they have chocolate cake? Uh, did you ever see, I guess it was at uh, Stephen Colbert, Colbert's uh, Christmas special, where they had like a Toby Keith to take off one of his, you know, militant songs about the war on Christmas? I think it's pretty funny. I think it was the first <laughs> one that Stephen Colbert ever did, but T- Toby Get- Keith was a special guest on it. So, uh, You know, uh, Jimmy Fallon, I think last, or th- Thursday night or something, said that, well, you know, things are tough in this country when uh, the president goes away to the Middle East to get away from it all. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Colbert yeah. was saying, you know, well, uh, you know, the thing about uh, giving away Israeli intelligence to the Russians, no big deal, because we know over over in that part of the world, they don't hold grudges for thousands <laughs> of years. <laughs> Memories are long. Oh, uh, Anthony Wick wishes us a happy, happy Saturday. A happy, so, happy Saturday. One of them, he's a faithful listener, Anthony. And we just became Facebook friends, I think. So. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Friend Bill, too. Bill's very interesting on social media. He gets all the trolls in. <laughs> yeah, just friend me for a while, and then I'll probably offend you. So, but I won't. Uh, that's okay. By the way, on the Fox Five yesterday, which is now on at nine, which is and it's now the Fox to, Four because someone got fired. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so they uh, they uh, they were saying uh, th- they had one of the veteran reporters, good reporter, I forget who it was, but it's at four a.m. in in Saudi Arabia, and they were like, "Greg Guffel says I have a question. How's the alcohol situation over there as a reporter?" <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Which is a valid question. I it mean, is a valid question. I've never been to Saudi Arabia. I, I have. Uh, I, it's quite easy to get alcohol in Morocco, I guess, and uh, and if you need to in East Jerusalem. But anyway. Lindy has a friend who was a nurse for like a, a prominent Saudi prince, like a personal nurse. Mm-hmm. She's an RM, and she's she said that they go to a lot of parties at the embassy, U.S. embassy. Uh, like right. there's yeah. you know if you you can regularly get to the embassy and they have convivial beverages for the infidels. Yeah, yeah. Well, today uh, we're going to talk about an article that in, in honor of. We're going to talk about language, right? In honor of our our our, our supreme leader, who is <laughs> he's regular Cicero. Yeah, yeah. He has the best words. <laughs> yeah, actually, he's a kind of a, he's an interesting case study in uh, in, in analyzing some of the things we're going to talk about. But uh, an article that my good friend Jim Wood uh, and Jim Wood is the senior pastor at the First Presbyterian Church in Norfolk, Virginia. 
Uh, you know, I think last week we talked to Matt Milner. I, I mentioned Don Baker uh, as being a formative ministry friendship. Probably the other most formative friendship in ministry was Jim Wood. He and I uh, met. We were at, we didn't we missed each other at Princeton, but we did doctoral work together. And uh, Jim was probably the smartest, most capable pastor I've ever met. Uh, That's high praise. Yeah, a brilliant theologian. A great practitioner, a great sense of how business and things like that. There are literally, he's probably saved hundreds, if not thousands, of lives in Africa. He's started an AIDS hospital there and has done preventive medicine there through this clinic. Uh, just a great guy. And uh, really, uh, there was a you know a period of time there where we really were together all the time, studying, doing ministry together. Uh, who He's the one who first got me involved in a lot of mission work, uh, direct mission work as a pastor, and, and was really influential, influential in some of my early years. And, you know, again, um, we talked about, we've never, we've talked about doing a whole podcast on how you and I work, but at the heart of this podcast is our friendship. Uh, and, you know, one of the great joys of doing this is we do it together. It's kind of a way of not only... We'll do it together with very little natural light. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But uh, this is artificial. Artificial. Yeah. There's a little bit of there's a little, natural, little light. natural light. It's a little overcast, but almost a little coming in. But at the heart, this flows out of our friendship. And I'm, you know, I mentioned my relationship with Don Baker. I think about Jim Wood, and uh, you know how essential and how important it is to try to to walk with somebody in this work, particularly those of you who are doing ministry. I had uh, lunch this week with two pastors who are doing great work. Uh, Jim's down in Collingswood, and. Uh, uh, Dan, Jim Anger, who I know. Yeah, and Dan is in, is in um, Willow Grove. Both of them have, one's doing a new church development, the other's turned around a church. And one of the things in both the conversations that struck me is they talked about how important team ministry. Uh, uh, Dan has some seminarians that he's going to be losing here soon. And the last couple of years, his turnaround as congregation has been because of his relationship. Jim and the new church development, they raised extra money. So he and uh, the guy who's, who is on staff with him can do it together because they're a great team. And I, I just think that that's something, one of the reasons I think the pastorate is so hard on people is because we are so isolated. And I don't think ministry or the Christian life was meant to be lived alone. And so. I think this has been public life and corporate. I mean, you look at studies that show people that are highest in job satisfaction have things like uh, an environment that's conducive to relationships where their yeah. ideas are taken seriously, where they can, yeah, I mean, I think that in all areas of life, I mean, yeah, do, doing things where you're living and doing things in, in some sort of solidarity with people that you, you know, can at least stand yeah, <laughs> and, no. and, and maybe even like is, I think, a real blessing. Yeah. And, and again, you can't be a Christian by yourself and you shouldn't be doing ministry by yourself. And again, sometimes it's not our fault. I mean, I've gone through many isolated periods, but try to find someone who you can walk with. And uh, in some ways, I mean, you know, we have de- part of why I uh, do this is because um, so that at least there's someone you can listen to, two guys who are trying to do this, and, and maybe you can feel like you're part of our conversation. We hope you feel that way uh, by extension. And we're I'm doing st- it these days to work on my Trump impression. Yeah, that is. I don't know that it's, I've hit the wall. And it's you not are, getting better. And you are expanding your podcast empire. But, we're uh, trying. We're trying. But at any rate, um, so this article that Jim, thank you, Jim, for sending it to us. Jim's a listener. Um, it's in Nautilus um, magazine, or it's an online thing. And I'm going to probably pronounce this improperly, but it's called the Kukle problem. Where did language come from? And it's written by Carmack 
McCarthy, uh, the great novelist. Uh, you m- may or may not remember his works, All the Pretty Horses, a great book. No Country for Old Men, which probably most of you are more familiar with the movie. The Road, a great, uh, if you like the end of the world or post-apocalyptic stuff, that's a great book. And he's a fellow or a worker at the San- Santa Fe Institute. And so um, the guy who does the forward is a person who is a who is a uh, the president professor of complex systems at Santa Fe Institute, David Crocker, and uh, Crocker, and it really is a part of his, you know, couple, you know, ten, ten year old or ten year conversation they had about the nature and the origin of language. And so, we'll it is a fascinating um, article. We can we put it a link in the show notes for it. We can because uh, we're just uh, <laughs> and it's not long. It's not long, but it's not without. Uh, it's not a challenge. So we are going to skim and skim some of the ideas here. And again, we both confess that uh, this is something that stretches our own intellectual capabilities. But I'll just get the thing started here. Part of what he's thinking about is the relationship between the unconsciousness or unconscious and language. In other words, you know, there's debate on how old language is. The some people say it goes back, you know, two million years. Some are even saying it is as new as 100,000 years or whatever. But one of the things, whenever language started, and we're the only species who felt it was a necessary part of our evolution to develop it. Now, that doesn't mean other species don't communicate, but there's nothing at all like what we do. And uh, then ironically, it, you know, it, was a, it was an evolution that wasn't necessarily biological, uh, but that once it happened, it it uh, there were no boundaries to keep it from happening. And uh, what one of the things he said one of the <laughs> one of the common one thing all common all languages have in common they evolve towards their usefulness. In other words, they keep they keep uh, developing in a way. Uh, the only rule is that they do whatever they need to do to be effective in their context. Yeah, I, yeah, and uh, yeah, I think that's true. I was thinking about Esperanto. When you try to create a language, which that's interesting, right? Because it, it it's it's something that was like contrived, and languages kind of don't work that way. So no, that, they that, don't. that was usefulness, like a solution in search of a problem, right? Right. Which it doesn't usually. Well, work one, effectively of, that way. one of the things that's interesting, and they talked about the whole. Um, I, I forget what the what scientist it was, but who was kind of struggling with a a problem, and then it came to him in a dream and a symbol. That is the that is the. Kekule. Oh, there's that's where he is. Okay, now that's right. And so, one of the things about it is that what's the because does our and so basically he's like trying to figure out the structure of a molecule. Right. And in his dream, he has this vision of a snake eating its tail, which is ancient mythological subconscious primal image. And he's like, "That's it. It's a ring." Yeah. <laughs> so the thing about it is, you know, our subconscious often use symbols. I mean, for instance, uh, your dream life. I mean. Um, Whatever our why, whatever puts our dreams together, our subconscious. All right, I'll use this. You know, why often they're very strange because they're put together by different kind of symbols that are, that do or do not make sense. Uh, you know, that's part of uh, his even theory that it's you know more interested maybe in picture than in actual language. It's kind of a pre-verbal history to it. Um, the idea that our subconscious can do math, you know, without a pad and paper. There's all kinds of things that are very fascinating. The fact that right now I'm not thinking before I'm talking. Now, that may be painfully evident to those of you who are listening. Yeah, of course. But if you stop and think about that, that's constantly what's going on. None of us stop and think in, in general conversation. 
And those of us who maybe lecture or give talks for a living who don't go by notes, we are pulling without even consciously thinking about the information we're dealing with. There's something that's remarkably amazing about the relationship between the verbal and the nonverbal. But this is like Kahneman's work, thinking fast and slow. Because I would say the unconscious mind is good at doing certain kinds of math. Like if I say, Bill, what's 8 times 8? 64. What's 793 times 8,632? I'll have to get back to you on that. Right. Then you'd get pen and paper out, and that's where, like, symbol structures and... Uh, so I think that that... But, right, but I guess our primitive primitive humans didn't need to do that kind of complex math. Right. I, right. Or So, for instance, like, if I say to you, like, say silk four times. Say what? Silk four times. Silk, 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 silk. What's a cow drink? Milk. Well, what's water? But see, you're unconscious because ah, I got go. you to say silk. You do that to me. You've done that in yeah. previous episodes. Your unconscious is not good with the remedial problem. <laughs> that's true. No, but I think that that's... because I'm so advanced. I'm so totally advanced evolved. But that's where, like, I think our frontal lo- Like, I think one of the things that it is the unconscious, the fast thinking. We couldn't get through a day without using it all the time. Otherwise, we'd just be paralyzed all the time. No, no. It's a highly, it's a highly functional process yeah and yeah it's it's one of those things where like i think part of our um development of language is just maybe it's just the frontal lobe and the capacity of the brain to actually entertain more and more abstract thought and then to be able to create and see new problems i mean in in new kind because because i think something like what in the article he talks about this is something the unconscious or subconscious is almost like this thing that tool to function to get an animal going and moving around the world and something about i think our brain capacity creates something you know aristotle says like we're rational animals right and so like he you know he said if we don't have an unconscious we would be a plant so for for aristotle you know that there's vegetative life animal life but they're interesting like us and most of the animal world is he'd say we're animals with a sort of rational telos and i think there's something to that mm-hmm yeah, you know, one of the things that's interesting, too, is how, you know, we've, we've talked about this before, that we tend to like things that we agree with. So that's part of the whole problem with the fake news. And uh, 31% of American population continue to support Nixon, uh, even after it was proven that he had, you know, tried to, you know, that day he did obstruct justice and put the Constitution at risk. Uh, in spite of these weeks, Trump's numbers are still at about 38, 39 percent. So there's a sense where whatever we'd like, for whatever it appeals to us, often that uh, whatever is it's being driven by non-rational forces. I mean, it's kind of like, for instance, a lot of prejudice and bigotry. It's not really rational, but it serves a it's part of something that has served a purpose of, you know, the demonization of others, uh, the suspicion of those that are different from us, you know, it does have probably have a socially evolutionary function. Great, horrible things have happened from it. But you can, you know, you don't have to be a, a uh, you know, evolutionary anthropologist to figure out why that exists. Well, yeah, you look at a show like The Walking Dead, right? You have the zombie apocalypse and you go from people living in late modern society, which you see strangers all the time. They don't weird you out to Nobody lets a stranger in their community without a lot of interrogation because of this very, there's this, you know, the tribe gets tighter and threats become mm-hmm. more readily apparent just by association. The other thing is, you know, they've done studies like you will, let's say you see an accident on the road and like traffic slows down. Part of that is because people see an accident. They don't know how it was caused, but they think, oh my gosh, I shouldn't drive 75, the subconscious. I got to slow it down. So. Wow. The subconscious makes all sorts of associations that aren't necessarily that really that slowing down in that instance probably doesn't make you any safer. No. 
But what happens is you're just you're, your subconscious just makes all these associations. And again, part of the freedom of that is that you walk around and don't have to think about every decision, and it makes human life much more creative, interesting. But but it, we often just do make all sorts of associations that, if we thought about them, are non-rational and often irrational. Well, it's it's like again, it's fine. All of us slow down after we've passed the cop in the speed trap. Right, right. It's too late, but we do. Right, it. right. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that's that's an interesting uh, thing to, to think about. You know, one of the things uh, uh, McCarthy says in the in the work is that our subconscious tries to get us to do things that are good for us. Now, in the broad broadest sense, right, right. You know, that's part of. For instance, why do you have Reoccurring dreams. Now, I had uh, a strict, strict, uh, straight up behavioralist uh, psychologist say the reason you have a reoccurring dream is that your mind remembers that that woke you up one time, so it uses it again because you're sleeping on your hand or have to go to the bathroom or whatever. So that's that's the least interesting of all uh, of all the uh, explanations. And then you can go to, to your most extreme Jungian uh, dream theory. But you know, I do think. Um, that our dreams are trying to tell us something. I mean, it's funny. I have certain variations of a reoccurring dream, but still trying to work out certain things that obviously I haven't quite come to grips with. And I think that's, um, and sometimes, you know, they can be quite disturbing. And uh, like I had a series of them this morning. It really, I was going to, I woke up at, you know, my usual time a little bit before six. And I thought, I don't have to get up this early on Saturday. And these disturbing dreams didn't let me sleep in. <laughs> I woke up a little before six. I did the laundry. I cleaned the house. I worked out. I, what else did I do? Made Lindy coffee. I did a lot of things. Oh, so you, maybe you have merged your subconscious with your conscious and you have, you have arrived. Nah, I just figured I couldn't go back to sleep either. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought I'd be productive. Yeah, very good. So what? When you were reading this article, and you both both of us read it, um, um, you know, one of the things, one of the questions. And let me that, tell you a mistake my subconscious made. I saw two typos where there was not an apostrophe on a contraction, and it was late at night, and I was reading. I thought that's got to mean something. And then I just read it again today, and I thought, oh no, it doesn't. They're just typos. But like because this is. <laughs> well, great. the first oh, time you called me, said you said you you had a I was very like, dude. I had this great insight. Yeah. I mean, it's this can't be accident. Well, it was accident. That's funny. Uh, yeah. So there you go. No, it's one of the things he says, did language meet some need? The an one answer is no. The other 5,000 plus mammals among us do fine without it. That's kind of an interesting thought. Now, there would be people who would disagree with that. Yeah, I think like, well, I mean, it depends though, because I'd say it, it probably it doesn't, it meets a need when there's a certain level of brain development. So because there are new problems come to the horizon like it's interesting because we've talked about this before dogs can read human emotion the way people read it like if i'm looking at you i think it's i start if i'm trying to gauge your emotion based on facial expression i go from the upper left hand corner to the bottom right hand corner of your face wolves can't do that dogs closest evolutionary ancestor chimps can't do it that's the closest you know right. advanced to ours so something about dogs being in for millennia in human social life, they've adapted. There are dogs that have vocabularies of 900 words where they can like actually like I think one in Germany even with flashcards. Like uh, maybe they had to say that. Maybe they had to say it. But yeah, I think they'd have to say it. They couldn't read it. It might have learned. They might have. Th I, this person might. Well, the dog might not be able to read, but it could see these squiggles with this object, that kind of thing. Okay. I, I'll look it up, everybody. Yeah. If, yeah. if I can find this out, I will. But, but I mean, they know like – so I don't know like – the when it says it, it does evolve to solve problems, well, sometimes there are possibilities that become problems. Yeah, you know, because yeah. they say, oh, "Okay, I could do this now." And, you know, this is why. I mean, why are we not content to just live in caves or just live in 
houses that are completely pragmatic and non-decorative. I mean, we want to make our, our dwelling a home and shape it after something that would like, make us feel like it's it, it, it's us. It's, a, it's an expression, an exterior of our interior reality. Yeah. One of the things he says is interesting. He says he compares the idea of the history of a virus to that of language. He says the difference between the history of a virus and that of language is that the virus has arrived by way of Darwinian selection, and language has not. The virus comes nicely machined, offer it up, turn it slightly, push it in, click, nice fit. But the scrap heap will be found to contain any number of viruses that do not fit. Okay, that's part of how they are actually, when you're doing research into the DNA and virus, that's one of the things they're looking for ways to turn it off because there is... You know, there is the uh, history of it, you know, not working there in the DNA. Um, there is no such selection at work in the evolution language because language is not a biological system. And because there's only one of them, the Ur language of linguistic origin out of which all languages have evolved. I love this one thing, too. He says, so what are we saying here? Uh, that some unknown thinker sat up one night in his cave and said, wow, one thing can be another thing. Hmm. And, yeah, and you know it's it's an interesting uh, that may in some levels be whenever that happened that that may be our uh, our evolutionary atom. Yeah, yeah, and, you know it's because there's a certain cause those of us who don't believe in uh, six day literal creation. I mean, still believe that God. At least those of us who are uh, Christians or theists uh, that God was still involved with living things through the whole process, and that there was some point where the creature stopped living a life of praise and adoration of God just by being its existence, like a tree does or an animal, and had to make a choice whether they were going to seek and honor that which is bigger than them. And I think one has to do some sort of symbolic differentiation to do that. So the birth of language in many ways may be the very birth. I mean, that's, I'm not saying people didn't worship before there was language, but uh, it was with language that people could begin to complicate, com uh, contemplate together what, what, why we might be here. Well, yeah, and with language comes the possibility of a shared reality that is independent and yet shared, you know, that, that, yeah. that we can talk about, describe it, we can offer different descriptions and the level of complexity. It also, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to that Freakonomics was doing this series of things on, of economists designing an ideal world. And they talked about, they were talking about income, or just inequality, equality, income, inequality, or, or and its presence. And basically they were saying, once you get out of hunter-gatherer stuff, which is very equal, once you get out of there and start with agriculture, Inequality runs rampant. <laughs> so, it, well, it, hunting it, gathering can, but you know, the better. I mean, the strongest person is the chief, and yeah. hunting gathering. So, it, but basically, everybody kind of works together. I mean, but the, you do work the, together. Diffu yeah, the diffuse. Yeah. You might have a chief, but the, it's not like you have. Everybody a finds a role. Well, and also, there's just not that much to go around. Everybody's right. doing the same role, basically. Right. You know, right. they're. A couple different functions in society. Right. Everybody has to train to do them, and you kind of, you know, you, the, the the possibilities, even with human fallibility and, and, and selfishness, the possibilities for inequality are not as great because the thing is just not as complex. Right. No, I mean, I think if you ever have an opportunity, well, some of the better movies that portray like a buffalo hunt or even Native American, you know, the fishing for the whales and things like that, and what the community does, I think probably is illustrations of that. You know, one of the things, I, as I was reading this article, I'm in a conversation with a couple of people right now who uh, are trying to understand the Christian understanding view of the Trinity. They come from non-Christian backgrounds, and they're you know trying to just explain to them the Trinity uh, beyond by just saying, well, the Bible bears witness to it. But one of the things I think in terms of 
this article, is there something that happens in the human when they go from when the unconscious or when they begin to be able to speak? And you can't help but think about the biblical and theological uh, analogy to God speaking into the creation, uh, John 1, version of the creation story where in the beginning was the logos, the word. And in some levels, it, creation's almost God speaking his logos or, or God speaking his word. And uh, that on one level, that's when God becomes, <laughs> you know there, there's a there's a kind of, there's at least a duality there where the unknown God or God that's only known to God's self becomes a revealing acting God. There's there's a movement there in the deity, and um, um, and I think that's one of the ways that I mean, if you want to build your trinity from the ground up, that's part of how it happened, began to happen. You, you you once you get to a two, you can get to a three pretty easily. Uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> how would you get to a two? Um, I mean, getting it's like the it's like the uh, it's like the extended warranty of the car. Once you got to the two, the three is just an add <laughs> Well, because well, three is a magic number. I like that. One, I, I like yeah, that. Yeah, there's a man and a woman had a little baby. I like that. There you go. Three, they added the, it's it's a magic number. It's interesting, too, because Aristotle says, you know, like— By the way, Pythagoras thought it was a magic number. The uh, Egyptians thought it was a magic number. I, I'm, I'm for that. Uh, the I'm stu- done. The uh, Stooges. It's a magic number for the Stooges. Stooges. Yeah, three Stooges. Marx Brothers. Marx Brothers. Yeah. Um, Manny Moe and Jack, the Pep Boys. <laughs> yeah, Aristotle says, I think it's like basically— the police, the doxa, or the, I think do, it's doxa is how it seems to you. Basically, it's like if your theory, if your philosophical theory goes against the doxa, as things seem to rational, there's probably something wrong with the theory. And he thought the fact that we're rational animals and that the natural order seems to be rationally constructed, seems to have a teleology to it. Uh, oh, somebody just said three's company, by the way. That's true. Great. Oh, very nice. Thank John you. Ritter. Thank you. Uh, and Don Nuts uh, at the end. So, yeah, the fact that it has. <laughs> That, that it, it looks like it's describable rationally ought to say something about its own teleology. Mm-hmm. And I do think there is something to that. I mean, the, the trade-off, and this is kind of a thing, one of the things Hegel is, is struggling with, and I think that the problem of modern life is science is way better at telling us about the natural world than Aristotle was, as curious as he was about it. But it can't tell you why. It can just tell you that yeah. this... and so. Part of the teleology, the teleology of human beings and is we want to know why. Like our end. We have an right. end game. Tell us. Yes, we, want to, we want to know things. And right. that, so that rationality seems to betray that like the, the, the mere mechanics isn't enough. And so this, I mean, Hegel wanted kind of theory of everything, like many things were stupid. Part of the existential need for a theory of everything is it seems like everything it, it, it begs for theoretical understanding and description. Which, yeah, the description. But to circle back around, often our most profound moments in our life, whether they be spiritual, whether they be like amazing moments of love, um, you know, the, the moment you really discover the beloved or you hold your newborn child or you hold the hand of someone you love who's dying, uh, we circle back around to where language is woefully inadequate. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. And I wonder if sometimes if even language gives us the possibility of the horizon for its own act. Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe it's those are those are times we have the opportunity just to be. Maybe our unconscious self is uh, what Augustine. There might be something to Augustine in this idea of memoria uh, that that's the border of the soul and God. There's always something in Augustine.
Thanks to Inigar for the hassle, favor. 